0: Today's guest is Davis Sharamata. Here's our job talk with the journalist and communicator.
1: Welcome to the Job Talk podcast, where we talk with people who love their jobs. Our guests open up about their challenges, surprises, and secrets to success in their industries. Through conversation, we explore their careers, past work experiences, and the education that got them to where they are now.
0: Davis, I'm gonna take you back in time to when you were graduating from high school. Did you know exactly what you, what you wanted to do in life career-wise? I had no clue whatsoever, uh, Kim. I, um, I
1: grew up in Northern Alberta and I graduated from school and my goal at that time was to get a law degree and then never practice and work as a richly credentialed bartender in the <laughs> service industry. That was my goal. It was not a clearly defined one
0: at all. What, what kind of student were you in high school moving into university?
1: I was not bad in high school. I, was, um, I saw certain bad habits beginning to manifest themselves of procrastination and rushing to do a project and needing to rely on being brill- having a flash of insight and brilliance as opposed to an accumulation of hard work resulting in the success of a project that still continues to sadly manifest itself to this day in one form or another. Um, But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you can safely say that I was, uh, I did not have a richly set out career path that would have resulted in
0: long-term satisfaction. Okay. So you graduated from high school, I'm guessing with fairly decent marks. Where did you go to, what was your first post-secondary experience? Uh,
1: I went to the, I enrolled in the, I want, as you know, like I said, I want to be a lawyer. And so what I did was I, uh, you, I went to the University of Alberta and I enrolled in the, um, in the Bachelor of Arts program uh, with an English major and a philosophy minor. And um, I mean, this was at that time, it was in the late 1980s and Alberta's economy was not doing well. You know, We were still in quite a recession and a, a, just a bachelor's degree was regarded at that time as pretty much the kiss of death for a career and rendering you pretty much unemployable. And so it was kind of understood at that time by me and my friends in the program that we would need to continue on to um, take a, get a second degree in something. Uh, to be able to have really any shot at a at a meaningful career, um, but um, I found myself after about four and a half years um, uh, deciding that school was over, that um, I. N- I didn't want to practice as a lawyer, and I didn't really want to go to law school. I needed to think of something else. And so I kind of bailed, wound up with a three-year degree, not a, not a four-year degree, a three-year general degree, which was still available in those days, and then left school with no idea what to do. And I wound up getting a summer job that uh, my parents helped me get at the Alberta legislature as a summer student. Um, working for the government caucus, uh, just basically as an, as an office assistant. And so I did that for three months, and then September rolled around, and I had no idea what to do. And so I um, went back home and was trying to, trying to think of what to do. And this was, this was one of the decisive moments in my life because I grew up um, in a little community called Grassland, Uh, which is sort of halfway between Edmonton and Fort McMurray in central Alberta. And there was a large industrial project, the Alberta Pacific pulp mill coming in. And they were looking to employ, um, you know, a certain number of people from the community. And I was kind of told that, you know, I had a, you know, a university education of whatever quality and that if I wanted to apply, I'd have a shot at getting a job. And, um, I really wasn't. I and my parents told me, like you know, you don't need to, um, uh, you don't need to stay here forever. But this is this is good, meaningful employment. It'll get you started on the way. And I kind of knew at that moment that if I stayed, I was going to wind up buying an expensive vehicle, getting a girlfriend, I, I, or at least hopeful, optimistic that I, reasonably <laughs> optimistic that I would, and that you know you tend to stay where you are and i was really concerned i mean at that point i was like 22 years old and so what i did was i um i wound up kind of heading back to the city and crashing on a friend's sofa while i tried to figure out what i was going to do being you know not especially employable and i thought i was going to wind up pumping gas or something and then the mla that i worked for who represented uh the athabasca laklabish constituency the late mike cardinal wound up calling and saying Uh, a job had opened up in the mailroom at the legislature and what I like to apply. And so I did it and that basically enabled me to stay in, to get a foothold in Edmonton, making very, at the time I was, and I was told by the chief of staff I would make $1,700 a month. And that seemed to me to be at that time an absolute king's ransom. It enabled you to live on your own. And so I did it for a couple of years and um, I wound up uh, I knew some speech writers there at the time and they wound up saying, you know, why don't you, why don't you try this as a job? You know, you have an English background. They'd seen some little messages I sent. So I wrote a few, a couple of speeches and communications basically on spec uh, after hours in, on the computer in the mailroom, room. And um, they, that wound up being enough to let them give me a shot as a speechwriter, which I did for three years. And that really got me got me a foothold. And it was kind of exhilarating at that time. I, if, if a person hasn't been to their legislature or the, the, the House of Commons, you've got obviously the legislator sitting on the floor and you've got the speaker's gallery up top. And the first time I sat in the speaker's gallery and, um, uh, and not the speaker's gallery, the public gallery, looking down as, an, as uh, you know, a representative was reading your words and they were being read into Hansard, and that they would live there was really quite, a, quite an exciting experience. And at the time, I was a, a firebrand, well, not a firebrand, but a young, pretty liberal. And I was working for the government caucus at that time, which was something that I was not politically aligned with at all. And it was really interesting working in uh, a not entirely congenial environment with very long hair, um, and I was, you know, which was not representative of them at that time. And just sitting there, it was a very unusual experience. It was a great start to the career and walking into the legislature in the morning, um, you know, in the, in the rotunda there in Edmonton, it was, it was just really cool. I really enjoyed it. I, I considered it to be a great start to my career.
0: I was just going to mention, so you're a writer, you're writing speeches. Did you uh, ever have an idea that you wanted to become the politician that was, was saying the words rather than being the person in the background, being the writer? Never. Never. Never.
1: It is a, it's a very challenging life
0: being a politician.
1: Um, you need to, it, you, you need to be a great balancer. You need to speak, you need to know when to speak gen, you know, ingenuously and disingenuously and the other thing i learned was that it was very clear i told myself if you want to work in this profession after the age of 30 you need to be open to the idea of running for office and i never had i never had any desire to run for office and i had no illusions about my electability either uh, in terms of my ability to get people to vote for me so that was just never an option so leaving was a um, was a good um, that was always going to happen and so um And also it's a it, politics is an extremely uncertain um, business. And I saw people that I knew who had been there in the you know for 20, 25 years, and suddenly, you know, the light in the room changed, the environment changed, and they were gone through no fault of their own. It was a, it, it's an incredibly uncertain um, uh, way to make a living. And it was nothing I ever really I, I had no illusions about staying in there for the long term. And so I wound up uh, leaving, you know, or being told to go when I was about 28 years old with enough of a settlement to enable me to get a foothold in another thing. And I knew I wanted at that point to be a journalist. I mean, you had the journalist, the journalist gallery and the journalists um, uh, in the press gallery, the legislature, I looked at them. They were like rock stars and there were some really good writers there. And I thought it would be really, really cool to do. And um, so even when I was a speechwriter, once again, I started doing the next job on spec. And so I um, volunteered for writing for free with this very small inner city paper called the Boyle Macaulay News, um, which I'm, I'm not sure is still running anymore. It was just, uh, there was just uh, two or three very passionate staff who were working for free. And it was one guy who was mimeographing it in his... Um, in his office and this is like I said this is located in the inner city of Edmonton so very much serving the inner city community and I I called them and they said yeah no problem at all and so yeah my first my first ever journalism story I still have a copy of it it was on the front page and I was covering I think like a flea market or something and I was walking around reviewing the booths and the food. And I took it very, very seriously. I <laughs> uh, tried to taste everything, and then wrote, you know, six hundred words on it. And they ran it on the front page, and um, and it was it was it was really cool. So I did that for for a while, and then I, when I left the the legislature, I wound up call, working for um, I got or I contacted I think um, a seniors uh, an Edmonton seniors newsletter and uh, seeing if they would let me write for them and they said yeah and we'll pay you five cents a word Um, which seemed like a a king's ransom but was not very much at all. So I did a few stories for them and then a a friend of mine worked with um, a company that was doing advertising and they kind of signed me on for a few months to sell and write ads and write a few feature articles so I did that. And that kind of enabled me to get a foothold, and then so I was basically working as a freelancer, not making a lot. And then a um, uh, the same friend said to me that he um, uh, had heard about a history book project that was being done by a um, a magazine called Alberta Report, which has a fairly notorious reputation, you know, very right wing publication, and not one that I agreed with very much, quite frankly. And they had a, they were doing a, uh, I believe it was called Alberta in the 20th century. So they were going decade by decade, writing a book about, um, uh, about the history of Alberta. And he said they were looking for writers. So I contacted them and they said, um, yeah, we'd be interested in, um, in, you know, have, you know, come in talk to us. And, um, Uh, But then they said, we're not interested in really having you do that but because you've got political experience, we would be interested in covering politics for us. And I had no other options at the time, so that was kind of of where I went with it. Very long story. I do apologize. I'm going to say one more thing, Kim, if I may, and you may need to edit this down for, for context, but I also had the biggest disappointment of my professional career because when I was selling the ads, I wound up going out one night with the guy who ran the advertising company and at the table that we were hanging out at was the current, at that time, I think the editor-in-chief of Canadian Geographic magazine, which I'm not sure is going anymore, but, um, you know, a really cool publication writing about, you know, land and culture in Canada. And we wound up hanging out and um, uh, my then-girlfriend and I went on a trip for a couple weeks to Europe and when I got back, the head of the advertising agency said to me, hey, this editor called you. They're looking for a reporter to write for Canadian Geographic. And he thought of you. Um, But I meant to give you the message like a long time ago. And so I called the guy and he said, yeah, you would have been perfect, but we filled it. And so right at the beginning of my journalism career was a chance for a staff job with a great publication, writing for a monthly, and it, boom, Fell on the ground. So my my journalism career started with an absolutely abject soul-killing disappointment, <laughs> which I'm feeling right now as I say this, which I've mostly recovered from.
0: What is your personality like? You mentioned you were a speechwriter um, in politics, and then yeah. you, you started to transition into being a journalist. Why you could easily... I don't want to use the word settle, but you could stay in that career for 30 years. What is it about you that you're continuing to to build and go into the next phase?
1: Well, you know, when 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 I grew up, you thought of your parents' careers as being you did the same job for 35 years with the same people. And it was very stable and everything. And my generation was, I think, the first one Where you began to understand that you would not that that kind of employment was unusual hard to come you know hard to come by and if you weren't careful could wind up being you know as much of a prison as an opportunity and um i uh i you know i tried to be really really aware of um you know, needing to to kind of keep moving and, and keep developing. And I wound up working as a freelancer for about five years, mostly for Alberta Report, but I had, you know, my byline appeared in McLean's a couple times, in Reader's Digest a couple of times, which was kind of cool. But it was a very, very uncertain lifestyle. And my real dream at that time was to work for a daily um, and really, really chronicle the... Um, you know the, the the news of the day in a in a breaking fashion and and really keep that you know really be that and I thought that would be that would be the thing I would want to do for the rest of my career and I wound up getting a call from the Edmonton from a guy with the Edmonton Sun saying you know we got an opening why don't you apply and so I started doing that I think I was 20, nah, 32 years old and I thought I've arrived I'm going to do this forever and I found the, the rigors of being a, a daily journalist were in, incredibly challenging because you were showing up for work and you had no idea what you were gonna be doing uh, uh, that day. You know, you might be, you you know, you could wind up at a, you know, the scene of a murder, at the, you know, at a, uh, at a government office covering a press conference, at a sporting event, um, and you really had no idea. And so I had to put in a mental exercise Whereas i was walking up to the stairs to the newsroom every day i would have to make my mind a complete blank so i was ready for whatever and that was i found that after a couple years of doing that i was it was it was was really not for me and the other thing is is that you you have no control (laughs) over what you're doing the you know the external world is deciding what you're going to be doing and talking about that day and that was that was really challenging but it was good for my writing because i learned you could write two or two or three stories a day if you had to and get them in on time and you learn to write clearly and quickly. And so that was a, that was a, that was a big, that was a big gift for me.
0: When, when you know, you're really writing for a newspaper, are you applying a formula to each story or how does, how does that work?
1: Well, you kind of know, right? You you know that's one of the great things about a newspaper column, which is that you um, you need to have in the first, in the first, basically the first paragraph exactly. You know, uh, who did what, why, when, where, and how, and why people should care. And so you you learn to be really really clear, and you try to, you know, you as 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 you know when you get you know decent at it. As people are talking and you're and you're you're reporting on the story, you're already writing it in your head. And someone's saying, you know what the first quote's going to be, what the second quote's going to be, who's going to provide a counter argument, what the fact, you know. And so it lays out. You're kind of laying it out, and then it's just basically a matter of typing it out really, really fast. And so yeah, you're kind of doing it. Um, there were people who were better at it than I was, obviously. But it was um, yeah, it's something. It, it definitely comes down to I don't want to say a formula. But certainly a familiar format. And the biggest thing I learned, which is that you never put key information in the last couple of paragraphs because uh, when a story goes into layout, you basically are told you have this many lines. And the format time, I think, was 51 or 31. So, you know, a story, a banner story at the top was 51 lines. Um, But you also knew that. Uh, sometimes new information would come in at 8.30 and the layout would change. And often one of the ways they'd make room is by chopping paragraphs out of the end of your story. So if you had an important piece of context, framing um, uh, framing the way things were going to go, you had to not put it in the bottom because that tended to be cut out. And uh, so just certain things like that, you, you, you kind of learned how to do.
0: do you, would you say, and this might sound harsh, were you burned out when you left the sun? Oh, God.
1: I was totally, I was totally fried out. I was like, this is, this is not for me. I had covered, covered too much. You're, you're kind of running on the line. Um, I'd covered a couple of crime stories. I'd had a couple of death threats by that point and uh you know one um one former mla i worked worked out with said you know you're you're if you if you haven't gotten the death threat in your job what you're doing doesn't doesn't really matter Uh, but i still didn't find that very comforting so (laughs) um and it's very difficult to to um it's a very difficult profession i really respect people who can do it over the course of, of an entire career and uh keep and maintain any sort of energy for it Uh, But for me, I was, I was, I was ready to go. And so here I was, I was 33, 34 years old, and I had already done the profession that I thought I would stay in. And at that age, I was kind of done with it. And so a friend of mine uh, had uh, heard about a job at Nate, the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology located in Edmonton as a writer. And the appeal of a nine to five job where you knew what shift you were doing reasonably predictable atmosphere um would be um was uh was very appealing at that point
0: i was going to ask you what the most stressful part about being a journalist is and i was thinking it might be deadlines but i'm guessing death threats is probably the most um the stress of of that job
1: deadlines are way more stressful than than death threats are even though one of them was ver was from a um it wasn't really a threat. It was more of a promise that if things went a certain way, that there was going to be a certain outcome for me. And um, that was, that was you, you sort of accepted that as a fact of the job, but deadlines were very stressful. I'll give you an example of my most, my most stressful moment really, really quickly. I was doing a story on um, about, oh God, we're going 20 years ago now. Um, the Alberta government was uh, working to settle a civil suit with, Uh, Albertans um, uh, who had uh, mental challenges and who had been uh, forcibly sterilized. Um, And so obviously an absolutely heinous practice. And they were attempting to make good on it. And I had written a story that was going to line, So it's going to be the lead story. And with seven minutes to go before deadline. So this is 9.30 p.m. Um, I'm hanging around the newsroom. The story's already gone through, and then we got a call. The lawyers have reviewed your lead and the headline, and they killed it. it. You can't run it. So I had seven minutes before we went to press to change the story, and and then they had to change the front page headline over it. And so the entire newsroom stopped. And the head editor said, "Listen, can you find another lead? You got to rewrite the first three paragraphs of your story. You got seven minutes." And if we don't hit this 930 deadline, like, you know, the presses are an automated process. Everything has to shut down. And it co- the estimated cost of that time was about $70,000 to shut the presses down and restart them. So I'm sitting there flipping through my notebook. And, and I had the guy on the rim watching me, who's the initial editor. And you had the guy laying out the front page. And I thought of, I had to think of a headline really quickly. And I said, how about this? And they said, no, how about this? And I, I told myself, stay calm. This is one of those moments, right? And so I found it. I said, how about this? And uh, they said, yeah, that'll work. So I started writing and they changed. They actually um, uh, changed the computer screen so that all of the editors could see what I was typing as I was typing it. And everyone was watching as I banged it out. So I wrote a lead, a first quote, and a second um, and a third paragraph. And everybody was watching. And then they were building a front page around it. And I think we made it with about a minute and a half to go and that was stressful that was that was tough you know you having to you know it's one thing to exerting bravery in in the face of of something like a death threat is challenging but having to think and produce something intellectually and write it and make words happen uh in a very tight timeline I found that that was that was challenging
0: And everything that you're saying, I mean, you're truly learning as you go. So you take all of that experience and then the stresses in your next job at post-secondary aren't at that altitude.
1: Not even close. I remember getting there and um, uh, I was writing a story for the alumni magazine, then called Alumni, I'm not sure it's still going. And I was writing something towards the back with a program update. And I remember sitting at my desk and thinking, I'm not sure... Anyone's going to read this, maybe five people, and I'm not sure they're going to worry about it. And I felt this liquid sense of relief go through me uh, at writing something so just inconsequential. It, it was, it was liberating at that time. I, I, you know, it, it really felt, it felt, uh, safe and relaxing and, uh, I didn't mind it. I knew I wouldn't want to do it forever, but it was, it, it felt good. And by the way, I loved alumnate. They, I, we wrote some good stories there. It was a very good publication, but it was, uh, it was good How to be staying. on board.
0: How long did you stay in, at that post-secondary?
1: So I, I was the writer for about three years, really liked it. So I was writing speeches. I was writing the, the monthly staff newsletter uh, you know writing communications and stuff and then a, a spot opened up in uh, our media relations person at that time uh, left and my boss said hey would you consider you know you've worked in the media would consider doing media relations and I really wasn't sure that I wanted to have anything to do with journalism again but I, um, I said you know sure. And so I did it for about a year, did and it went really really well. Like, you know, Nate, you've got 17,000 students going through there at that time. Lots of interesting people, lots of interesting programs and stories, and I found it, you know, it was it really was not challenging to to um to, you know, find, have stories come to you or find them and propose them to uh reporters and it was very relaxing because you know once i proposed the story and they started writing about it my job was sort of done and I, and I didn't have to write i was i was always like i don't have to write a story at the end of this so it always felt really really good and um, the greatest success i had we had a bunch of events one week and at one point we wound up we had pay we had the front page of the paper a story on page a1 a story on page B1, which is the city section of the Edmonton Journal, and a story on, I think, E1, which was the business page at the same time. And I I went and bought about 10, 15 copies of that paper. (laughs) and I still have them. And that was just, Nate was an interesting place. It was great to work there. And it was, you, you know, I know you worked there as well at the time. And so there was just a lot of energy from, you know, you had new students coming in all the time and it was just, you know, an educational environment. And I think that was the, the happiest I've ever been at a job. I actually loved working there.
0: Excellent. I want to speak in general terms, um, with the next section of this podcast. Um, just talking about your your role now. Don't get into specifics of who you're <laughs> working for, but the type yeah. of work you're doing now, and uh, and then we'll get into us. Uh, uh, can we call it a side project that you're working on?
1: No, it's the main project.
0: But yeah, yeah, no problem. Thing. I'll, I'll
1: okay. try to walk. I'll try to walk everyone through it really fast. So okay. After I left the AAR, I went into working in the oil and gas industry. I have worked for four companies. Um, you know, basically doing media relations and communications. So doing interviews with reporters and everything. Um, you know, writing writing press releases, um, you know, writing speeches, uh, sometimes writing internal communications. So right now I'm actually um, leading... Um, internal communications and external communications for, you know, an oil and gas company. Um, But just like every other job I've ever done, I kind of picked what I wanted to do next and started kind of doing it on spec. So for about, oh, geez, about 10 years from the time I first moved to Calgary in 2005, um, I I worked on a book project I wanted to do and uh, it was it was fiction and I'd, I'd written some stories before but I had I'd never quite wanted to publish them and I went working on this book which I considered to be a a real a real project and worked on it on and off and did a ton of research on it and about three years ago so I had you know, a couple hundred pages written tons you know oodles and noodles of re- research notebooks filled and Kind of was always chipping away at it, but it didn't really have a finish point. And uh, one day it came to me that you know what, maybe this book isn't very good. Maybe that's the reason you haven't been driven to finish it. I was more doing it almost like a hobby instead of as a project with an with an endpoint. And I decided one critical day to stop doing it, to give up the the book idea. And I was like, you know, it's it it seems very smart, but it's a little bit derivative. Uh, It was very influenced by an Argentinian novelist named Jorge Luis Borges, a very famous guy. A little pretentious and just, it's a better project to talk about than it is to actually read for the viewer. And so I gave it up. And I remember thinking, uh, here I am for the first time giving up the next thing I'm gonna do. So I'm doing a thing, but I have no next thing. And how's this gonna go? And about eh, about maybe a week later, um, uh, something kind of said to me that, you know, there's a book coming in your head and it's going to arrive over the next few days. And so I kind of put myself ready to receive it, if that was actually the truth. And then I was actually doing the dishes one afternoon on the weekend and over the course of about six, seven minutes, the entire book rolled into my head, kind of from start to finish, including a title. And I was like, "Wow, that was interesting." And I kept doing the dishes and just stayed very, very calm about it. And that became the project that I was working on. And so I've been really working on it it ever since. So uh, the book is entitled "Simultaneous," bit of a long title with a lot of—I think six six syllables—but it's um, basically about uh, an accountant named Michael who meets a computer programmer and who's, uh, yeah, uh, meets a computer programmer named Sophia who is testing a, a, a project, a technology called Speak, that enables users to capture uh, for a brief time a small segment of their consciousness and save it onto a file. And at the time I thought, you know, this came to me, it was quite a novel concept. I since did some research and found that this isn't that really that far off. That there there are there are, are people who are working on similar things like this, um, and uh, the project was not appealing because anyone who has done this before, someone always wound up sliding a helmet and trodes on their head, and I thought if I if someone's got to slide a helmet on their head, this thing is over, uh, and I didn't even want to write I didn't even want to write it, much less anybody want to read it. And so I thought about it, and I my critical mind was always saying, and I was like, you know, if it's done with an earpiece, that could be charming enough. And it turns out a few months later, I read about a company that was actually trying to patent something like that, an, an earpiece that can actually capture kind of a segment of, a, a, you know, a, a brainwave over a certain period of time and save it. So it's not that novel. And there was actually a company I learned about it, I did some research and found there was a company in the southern U.S., that sort of does something like this, where they are taking people who are suffering from advanced Alzheimer's and attempting to capture sort of their brain waves and then play it back to them to try to slow down the brain, the brain's you know, uh, you know, eventual disillusion, which is um, you know, which made me very sad. Um, and but at the time it was quite novel, and so I got to work on it. And I learned very quickly that the written format didn't really work. And one of the things that didn't really appeal to me, I've read, a, you know, what I think is a lot of fiction, and I've never quite been satisfied with the ability of black text on a white background, however formatted, to be able to put across kind of the spatter of a of a moment. Um, because eventually your eye is always going to go to one one part, one part, one part, and it's very sequential. And you could linger over it for a long time. And I, uh, I told myself, you know what? The book is going to not be a book. Why would this guy write a book? It's going to be a speak file with the, um, the, where the book comes to him the way it came to me after the action is over, where it replays itself in his mind over several minutes, and that's the way it's going to be. So I got to work writing it, and I wrote about half of the book, about 200 pages worth, and always knowing that this was the wrong format, but I wanted to advance the story, and I was kind of thinking about it all the time, and then over one very troubled evening when I was thinking about this, I was was like, you know, this needs to not be a written format. This needs to be in a format that is mobile that moves and I had the idea of text disappearing and reappearing on a screen and only being present for a very short period of time you know so that you, don't, you can't reread it you can only read it once and then it's gone so it'd be the form of like a video with words appearing on it and, and then gone basically the way reality appears to us. Um, where it's there, and then it's replaced by another thing, often very quickly, depending on what you're noticing. And the other thing the format had the ability to do was, you know, be able to present two things happening at the exact same time. And you choose which one you're going to look at, and that, that sounded like a really good uh, representation of choices that were faced with any moment, what to pay attention to what's a foreground, what's a background and what to, what would remain in a would remain peripheral. And so over, it started out very simple. And but I, I reached out to an animator and um, found one who would be willing to lay out in a very, very simple format. And um, we did a couple of chapters. Um, and then I sent it to a an animator, an animation instructor that I'd, re, I'd met at Mount Royal and said, what do you think of this? And it was literally one line, one line, one line, and then gone. And he said, you you know, if you're trying to reproduce the mind, you you could maybe make it a little bit more complicated. And that just totally triggered a switch in me. And um, uh, the animator I was working with went to another project and I found a guy in BC who did really great work. And we wound up with, at that time, six different column, uh, three columns, uh, something down at the bottom of the screen, something at the top screen, but basically six pieces of constantly changing text with the main action of the book happening over two, over two things. And you're representing the action of the book and just other mental processes and things that are happening at that time. And it was really appealing. Um, and then he wound up moving on to something else. And um, I wound up finding a third animator and we wound up finding an ideal format, which was three columns, uh, in different colors in a letterbox format. Um, uh, one column represents pure, unprocessed information. Uh, one column represents intermediate information. And one column represents the book as it's being written in the guy's head. And. Um, uh, over the course of about six or seven months of trial and error, I mean, we're, I'm probably on version 70 of this thing, um, we wound up coming up with something that I felt was visually appealing and that um, was complicated enough without being, too, without being completely incomprehensible. And so I've, um, we've been able to, we laid out two chapters. And this, has been, this entire book has been a series of crises, Solutions retrenching and uh, over over a couple of years, I had been thinking about whether this project needed sound and I was really wondering about what it would need. And um, uh, you you would remember I'm a record collector and um, I was trying to think what kind of music would go with this. And so over about six months, every time I got a finished version of the file, I would play, I mean, I played every, everything I could think of over it, from you know the music of Leonin and Periton from the 11th century, um, uh, which is um, uh, very simple um, vocal music, um, through um, the early Baroque, through keyboard music, um, into the classical period. I skipped over the romantics because I didn't think that would ever work. And then jazz, and then I was thinking of whether it would need to be all percussion. And um, and everything. And then I realized that there was a composer I really admire who could really tell me. His name is Francisco Lopez. He's a Spaniard. Uh, he's a biologist and composer who has kind of recorded all around the world. Um, uh, he's done environmental recordings, composed his own electronic works. And ha- I had about 47, 48 of his albums. And I thought, you know, I decided it needed sound and I decided that I should ask him what it would need. So I got his email off his website a few weeks ago and just sent him an email saying, you know, I think this needs sound and I think he would be the perfect person to be able to um, do it. And I asked him if he would be willing to license some of his recordings. And over, you know, just a few days later, he wrote back to me and said that he'd be happy to uh, you know, work with the project and that, you know, that he'd be willing to compose new material for it. And he, he, you know, he composes his own things. He will also take environmental recordings he's done, some of which are extraordinarily complicated, you know, the rainforest, uh, underwater, um, you know, a, a, a hive, an insect hive, and he'll, he'll either run it raw or he'll process it, but it's extraordinarily complex music, rhythmically and harmonically. And to have him agree to do this was was absolutely massive. So he is now we scored the first couple of chapters and we're ready to go live. And it really is quite a it's an interesting and very, very complex experience. So I'm really happy to be at this at this stage. You know, it's nice to and I'll just say this quickly. I've gone from a book that I was fooling around with that I would never finish to something that I felt was interesting enough that I I was driven to push it to uh, completion and a release. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it feels really good to be at this stage. I'm sorry for cutting you off, Kim.
0: No, sorry. I, I was cutting you off. Um, has this style been done before, or do you think this is, this is a first?
1: Um, in the history of visual art, I mean, there have been, there have been lots of artists who have worked with text. Um, and the other thing is, is that the notion of, of, Using moving text to be able to put aside an image has been in, in, in common practice for, for decades and done extremely well by the advertising industry. And, you know, all you have to do is watch the first rolling credits of Star Wars, right? And you know, what was it? In a, in, a, in a place far, you know, far, far away a long time ago. And you understand that this is, this is in practice. Uh, I'm unaware of anything where someone has tried it for long form fiction. Um, and especially in a multi-column format, I haven't quite been able to find anything like it. Um, It's certainly unprecedented to me. Um, You know, it wouldn't surprise me if someone had tried it, but as the format for a long-form literary project, I'm unaware of anything, especially with something with sound. It's it's either unprecedented or certainly very
0: unusual, and that feels good. When will this project be released? Do you think, and where where will p- people be able to find it?
1: Well, we are hoping to roll it out in April, twenty twenty two, the first couple of chapters that are scored, and um, I think I'm gonna I'm just gonna put it on YouTube and um, and then and then begin marketing it and promoting it, and with the current format between me and the animator, we are able to take my writing and animate it and then score it at about one one chapter every three weeks to a month um, and if we are able to um, if it proves successful and we're able to do it on a full-time basis we could likely get that down to a chapter every two weeks so like i said we've got two going up um if we're able to roll them and i, I the current format of the book calls for about 25 chapters so about a year's work um, rolling it out. To, and, you know, we're hoping we'll be able to build an audience and see if, see, if see first of all if people like it. That's going to be the real thing I see because it, it is, it is a challenging format, uh, but it is, you know, it's, it's certainly an unusual one. And, uh, you know, I, I um, people had asked us whether we should just write the whole book and drop it. And I think it we're at a stage where we really need to get it in front of some readers and get some feedback and see if it's, if it's, Coherent, and if it's something that they find either you know uh, enjoyable or informative in some way, if it has value to them, and kind of take their feedback and take that into consideration as we keep moving forward with the project.
0: I mean, your your project sounds really exciting. Congratulations on getting it to the the stage that you're at, and we'll look forward to when it's released. Um, just to finish the podcast, I'm wondering if you can give any advice to a university student graduating with a bachelor of arts moving into their, their life. Right.
1: Um, I don't know if I have, if I have advice per se, but one thing I can tell you is that, you know, um, I would give this to really, really anybody, um, which is that the, um, be willing to be, uh, fluid and mobile to adapt to opportunities and understand that the the thing that you really want to do, it is very possible that you may not know what it is yet. And be willing to make a lot of twists and turns and use trial and error to be able to find the thing that you want to do that will make you, you know, that will, before you find that thing that you're, you're excited enough about that it really doesn't seem like work. I mean, in my case, it took uh, you know, a number of different jobs. Um, the arrival in a profession that I thought was going to be the one I wanted to stay in that I found out later was, wasn't, and it's taken me a lot of years to find the, um, uh, the project and the format that, wound up being the thing that i wanted to do and even once i found it i had to work really hard and work through draft after draft version after version format after format through multiple collaborators to be able to arrive at something that i felt would would be you know of enough value to be able to roll in front of the uh, the unsuspecting public so it's you know uh you need to be ready be patient um be adaptable and, um, you know, be, uh, never basically never give up on it and, and just keep working towards it. And, uh, there have been many times where I thought, <laughs> I thought this thing is not going to happen and I'm going to be left with nothing. And I, you know, I was even willing to drop the, the project I've been working on and leave it with nothing. Um, and facing a very uncertain future with it to be able to get to here. And so, you know, uh, be adaptable and, and always remain hopeful. I think that's the
0: best way I could put it, Kim. That is great advice. Davis. I just want to thank you for your time today.
1: Hey Kim. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the job talk podcast. For more information, please visit us at the Jobtalk.com.